0: Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 13. The Gospel of Mark chapter 13. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand. We want to put a Bible in your hand. And so when you get that Bible, go to the 13th chapter of Mark's Gospel. Last week, if you remember, or maybe you weren't here, but we looked at two cultural currents that I believe threaten today's church. Two cultural currents is what we looked at last week. This week, we're going to look at another one. And the one we're going to look at is a very hot topic, very controversial, uh, and very quickly growing. And that is the issue of artificial intelligence. AI is what I want to look at. And I want to look at this in the context of what Jesus is telling his followers in the 13th chapter of Mark's gospel because he's warning them about the future threats that are coming to the future church. And I think AI, in some senses, not all, can be, if it's not handled rightly, a future threat that is coming to the future church, Uh, not just in America, but around the globe. So we're going to look at that in the context of what Jesus is saying in the 13th chapter. Let's pick up at the first verse so we remember what's taking taking place here. It reads this, And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now let's remember this ancient temple in the capital in Jerusalem was massive it was a 35 acre enclosure that could accommodate 12 uga football fields 12 sanford stadiums could fit in this massive enclosure called the ancient jewish temple okay it was the largest temple in the world in jesus time and it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world back then in that greco-roman time period okay So understand that the disciples here in verse 1, they're overwhelmed by it. They're they're gawking at it. They're saying, teacher, rabbi, Jesus, look at how wonderful this is. Look at how big it is. And then Jesus says something very shocking in verse 2. He says this. He says, do you see these great buildings? This 35-acre enclosure. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is saying all of this is going to be destroyed. And 40 years later, four decades go by, and that's exactly what took place. The Roman legions were ordered by Caesar to invade, to besiege the city walls, to cut off supply lines, to starve the people, and they eventually broke through. And what they did was they leveled this grand temple to the ground. One historian of that time period named Josephus, he's a great resource for any kind of Bible scholarship, any kind of Bible study, because he lived back then in that early period of the church. He writes this about the destruction. He says, and by the way, this would have been uh, around 70 AD. He says, the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot No ground for believing that had ever been inhabited, end quote. So if you're the disciples and you're standing there looking at this massive temple and Jesus tells you this in verse 2, he says, In your lifetime, you will see foreign invaders, armies, come over those mountains, over the Mount of Olives. They're going to invade your homeland. They're going to kill your loved ones. And they're going to tear this sacred structure to the ground. Everything you know, believe, and cherish will be destroyed. If he says this to you, what would you say back? What would you respond with to Jesus? I believe any and all of us would ask this following question, which is the exact question the disciples ask. Look in verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished they want to know when and you would want to know that too but Jesus doesn't exactly answer their question point blank he pivots to a different kind of warning. There's something else here in the 13th chapter that troubles Jesus for the disciples far more than destruction. It's not destruction he's worried about, it's what's called deception. Deception. He's not worried about the disciples in the early church being destroyed, he's worried about it being deceived. Look at Jesus' response. They ask the question, when, how will we know, what's the sign? Jesus pivots, and he says this. Jesus began to say to them, this is verse 5, See that no one leads you astray. That's the first thing. See that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. Sure enough, everything listed here takes place. First, there was war. That's the first thing he talks about. There were fears of war in 40 AD, so Jesus ascends to heaven, scholars believe sometime around 33 AD, and there was fears of war in 40 AD, so not that far removed, when Caligula, Roman emperor, attempted, this is what he attempted to do, to come into Jerusalem and to erect a statue in his name in the middle of the Jewish temple, which goes against every Jewish custom and belief. The people were outraged. It almost led to an insurrection. It was a rumor of war. There was fear of war. But later, in 66 AD, the Jews did revolt against the Romans. And this would have been about 30 years from the time of Jesus. So war and rumor of wars. Secondly, as Jesus says will happen, there were false messiahs that came about. History shows us that there were several, um, what should we call it, messianic pretenders that rose up and deceived a lot of people after Jesus. They even write about one of these in Acts chapter 5. In the mid-40s, there was a man named Theodias, and he boasted of all kinds of various signs and miracles he could do. He said that he could part the Jordan River, okay, and that according to Josephus, He led many people astray. It was a big movement. Josephus adds another account about these false messiahs Jesus warns about. There's an Egyptian who claimed back then to be a prophet. And he likewise succeeded in deceiving a pretty big uh, uh, population of the Jewish people and potentially some of the Jewish Christians. The third thing Jesus mentions is there's going to be natural calamities. And he he says that there will be Earthquakes, He says in various places there will be famines. He says these are the beginnings of the birth pains right there in verse 8. Well, lo and behold, there was famines during the reign of Claudius, Roman emperor. Earthquakes struck Phrygia in A.D. 61, and they leveled Pompeii in A.D. 63. Everything that's mentioned by Jesus in these verses, verses 5 through 8, took place as exactly as he said they would. Now, if we don't pause and get down deeper into what he's saying here and look at the history and the context, we'd never know that. We would just kind of ski. There's two kinds of Bible study. There's ski. I was at the lake this past yesterday. Yeah. We got home way too late. Our kids were tired and hungry and all the different things. And there's two kinds of Bible study. There's skiing across the surface, And then there's going in the water and going deeper. And that's what you have to do to really understand um, the great depth of what Jesus is saying here. Now, let's talk just practically. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. If you're one of the young disciples, you're thinking, Jesus, can you tell us a little bit more about these coming famines? Can you tell us a little bit more about these earthquakes and these wars? You would want to be prepared if all of these things, these threats, this destruction was coming in your lifetime to America. Would you not? If Jesus were to come today and he said, these things are coming in your lifetime, you'd have more questions. The reality is for the disciples in this chapter, there was much to be nervous about back then as their world was rapidly changing, just like ours is today. For us today, if Jesus were to say similar things, troubles will come for the future church. Pain will come for Americans. Loss will come. Pandemics will come. Economic catastrophes will come. Food shortages will happen. World war will rise again. But more concerning than all of that for Jesus is the warning that deception will come. He says, see to it that you're not led astray. He says, be on guard. Take a look at the verses. We go to that slide. Verse 5, see to it. That means actively pay attention, be aware, be in the know that no one leads you astray. Verse 9, he says, be on your guard. Later in the chapter, he says things like, be awake. Stay awake. Be awake to these things. For today's church, ideas, heretics, false messiahs, movements, inventions, ideologies, they will come and they will try and lead the church astray. I think could be truer for us today. Jesus goes on in verse 9 to finish out this section. He says, be on your guard. Then he speaks to the disciples specifically. And everything he says takes place in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is right after the Gospels. It's the birth of the church. Jesus says, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. And you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, Jesus says. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Studying this this week, and I'm sure you're hearing it now, raises this question to me at least. What do you think Jesus would say to us now in our time? Which things that are happening in the culture we live would Jesus warn us about? I want to look at one of those right now, and that is artificial intelligence. Now, before we begin, I want to make this clear there are some positive benefits, and there are negative drawbacks to this emerging technology. Some of you might even work in some of this technology. Not all bad, and certainly not all good. And so I want to begin by defining AI, because there's a lot of misguided speculation regarding what it is. And as we get into this, this is going to take us into two passages in particular in the New Testament that I think really speak with a theological and ethical lens into how the Christian man or woman should look at these things. And Jesus says, be awake to them. So that's what we want to do. So there's two kinds of artificial intelligence. The first one, and I think we have a slide for this, I'm not sure, there it is, is called narrow AI. And the second is called AGI, which is artificial general intelligence. Two kinds that you need to be aware of. The biggest difference in the two is that narrow AI does a single thing that normally requires human intelligence to perform, while AGI attempts to do everything that normally requires human intelligence and does it often better and faster than a human can. Let's first talk about narrow AI. This technology is already here. It's already in our everyday lives. It's in our midst. You can't get around it. Here's one example. This is what I would say is a positive, if handled rightly. You go to the doctor, and let's say you get an X-ray of your lungs. When you do that, they then take that X-ray and they put it in this system of artificial intelligence, this kind of algorithm. And what they do is they have, they have on file, through AI, millions of already taken X-rays that have already been labeled and diagnosed as to what the problem is. And so they take your current photo, your X-ray, and they throw it in the system, and they compare all of those within such a, a split second of time. And they quickly, this artificial intelligence diagnosis, which one is yours, what the problem is, okay? That's one example of narrow AI. It's already here, it's already being used. Another example, uh, a silly one, but a real one is online shopping, right? We've all had this experience. You, you, you've been on Amazon and it tells you what to buy next and you're like, wow, I was exactly thinking that, right? Or what's even scarier is you have your smartphone around you and you're talking about, man, I really want pizza and then the next time you pull up, apparently you know Instagram or something like that, there's all these ads from Domino's. Have you ever had this experience where it feels like it might be listening to you? I, I can't tell you whether or not it's listening to you. I, I don't have, that, I don't have that, uh, that clearance to really know, but it is odd. But online shopping, here's what's happening. There's a massive harvesting of your data, massive. That's what's taking place right now. And then the Amazon search engine, which is guided by narrow AI, it spits out the next thing that you should purchase simple as that now <clears throat> narrow ai again has its benefits and it has its its drawbacks but it's here and it's not going anywhere it's among us and it's staying and it'll be further developed the second kind of ai should cause us to really pause about the future agi is in the realm of trying to create a super intelligence. This isn't simply telling you what to purchase next, what book or whatever on Amazon, which can be very helpful. It has a far bigger aspiration and it is far scarier. This sort of AGI takes two different directions, okay? So let's talk about the two different ones. The first is this one is an attempt, now follow me on this, to make humans superhumans, and making them super intelligent by merging this technology with our biology. That's the first direction of AGI. It's when humans become like a kind of cyborg, okay? You've heard about NeuroLink and some of the things that are in development, certain chips that get planted in your brain is, is the really high goal for them, but there are other kinds. People currently, especially in Sweden, They're getting chips put uh, under their skin, many of them in their hand, right? And this is so that they can pay for things, purchase things, and also has other uses to its application. But this is already taking place. They're merging artificial intelligence with human intelligence. They're, They're merging this technology with our biology currently. There's a great scholar in Oxford, Christian man named John Lennox. He's a mathematician, but he's also, he crosses many fields, theology being one of them, but science in general. He says this, so in bits and pieces, people are becoming part biological and part mechanical, which often we describe as a cyborg. He goes on in the next quote, and he says this, And what is intriguing and rather chilling, actually, in the light of our AI developments, is that freedom to buy and sell is determined by the wearing of some kind of mark, an implanted chip. End quote. Now, if you know your Bibles well enough, it should lead us to speculate, and that's the key word—just speculation—but to speculate. About what's said in regarding to that kind of technology and the 13th chapter of Revelation. Okay? This is where it describes what's called the mark of the beast. You've probably heard about this, you've probably heard really bad theology about this. And maybe some good. Again, this is just speculation, and time will tell if there's a correlation. But listen to how it describes this mark and if it causes you to wonder at all about this AGI implanted application. Remember, again, about this technology, that the technocrats who are leading our world, they wanna have one monetary system. That's not conspiracy, it's been said from their very mouth. They wanna have one monetary system, No other options like cash or credit for the purchasing of goods via This kind of implanted chip. Okay? Again, just see if it causes you to speculate. I want you to turn back in your Bibles to the very end, Revelation chapter 13, and go to verse 15. It reads this, chapter 13, verse 15, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Pure speculation. I think Jesus gives jurisdiction for us. He says, be on guard. Be awake to these things. Let no one lead you astray. Now, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you leaving here saying, yeah, my pastor said that if you get that implanted in your skin, that's the mark of the beast. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we need, this is an exercise, not a declaration, but an exercise in being awake, being um, on guard, as Jesus says, to emerging technology, ideas and movements through the lens of scripture to say, is there a correlation? That's all. Just an exercise. I want to tell you about the second direction AGI is going. And this is the one that would keep me up at night. People want to be cyborgs. You know, I don't know about that. <laughs> Have at it, right? Unless Revelation 13 is exactly what it's talking about. Okay, here's the one that keeps me up at night. Instead of, and again, follow me on this. I know this is a little bit technical. But instead of merging this tech with humans, the second version is to try and start from scratch by removing dependence on human biological material. They don't need you. In this move, a human body is not needed to host the AI, which even that just should freak you out. That's what it is. You're hosting something that's not you. Rather, in this version, they would upload the contents of our mind, human intelligence, that start there, onto a durable material like silicone or something like that. Not into you, not cyborg. And from there, they would build it into a super intelligence, okay? But here's what should give you pause. It doesn't stop there. There's an important interview that Elon Musk gave where he revealed a troubling conversation he had with the founder of Google, one of the founders named Larry Page. This is gonna take us into a passage. At the heart of the conversation, Page, founder of Google, admitted that Google is trying to build, and I quote, a digital god. A digital god. That their highest aim and goal, that sweet little search engine we all use, so helpful, is to create through AGI a digital deity that possesses super intelligence like the world's never seen before. One that could respectively do almost anything. Now here's the deal. It sounds sci-fi. It sounds maybe even alarmist. Again, their words, not mine. Just quoting. But I believe any human being, believe it or not, should take them seriously because many of the world's leading scientists Are taking them seriously and what the experts will tell you is that Google with that aspiration has already acquired and accrued three-quarters of the world's greatest talent on artificial intelligence everyone's on their team with that win in mind so how do you feel (laughs) Those are the basic facts. Okay? Here's what I want to do. I want to go to the Word, and I want to reflect openly on these developments now from a theological and ethical standpoint. How should the Christian man or woman think about these things? And to get at that, I want to to start with this opening question. Here's a great place to start. From God's point of view, Or from scripture's point of view, what are these programmers effectively trying to do? It's the question. And I'm going to give a reference to Genesis 11. Answer. They are trying to build a digital tower of Babel into the heavens and steal God's intelligence. That's what they're attempting. To usurp God's superintelligence for themselves. Now, it should be no surprise to the church that this is where humanity is heading, since this is where humanity has already once been. The great thing about our Bibles is it is the, the narrative uh, 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 of God and the narrative of human development. And what we know to be true is that humans don't change all that much. We're born in the image of God, and we are born in sin. And what happened back then has a cyclical nature to happen once again. And I believe it's Tower of Babel-like work. Tower of Babel was at the beginning of human civilization. Let's turn there, and as we get into it, I think you'll start to see the connections. So we went to the end of the Bible. Let's go to the beginning. Genesis 11 is where you'll find the Tower of Battle. We're going to read this passage all the way through. It's nine verses, and then I want to show you one verse in particular that at the heart of it. Genesis 11, picking up in verse 1. Look at this language. Behold, they are one people. Remember that unification that wants to happen now. They all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Gosh, he was right. Imagine the technology and sophistication we have today compared to the beginning of human civilization. He says, this is just the beginning of what they'll be able to do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. What's happening here is that globalist agenda to unite everyone under one language, one government, one currency, one technology. And because of this grand unification of powers, humans will have a much higher ability to do anything as it says that they propose. You see, in the Genesis narrative, Adam and Eve... In Genesis 3, they wanted to become like God. The people in Babel in Genesis 11 want to take down God by storming the heavens and setting up their own united power system to rule the world. They wanted to unite and build their intelligence and power to make God irrelevant. They wanted to become and build as their own God. Do we not see similar things happening today with the potential of AGI? They want to unite all human systems into one. They want to force this artificial technology on every human society and person. They want to build this tech higher and higher, like a tower, So that through this digital God, this deity, they can rule everything from the heavens. Question that. Not sure if that's fully true. Recently, there have been several whistleblowers from inside Google that have sounded this kind of alarm. One in particular, because of how high his executive status was was a man named Mo Gadat who was the chief business officer for a division at Google called Google X again chief business officer he did an interview with the Times where he said that he believes that AGI the sort of all powerful sentient AI seen in science fiction is inevitable and that once it's here humanity may very well find itself staring down an apocalypse brought forth by godlike machines the end game is a digital god and agi is the digital tower of babel to build it do we see the connections I know it's a lot to take in and I want to be clear really clear that technology since the beginning of time has had both the capacity to do great good and to do great evil and I believe maybe in its smaller applications like narrow AI it is currently and can in the future do great good I really believe that I see it applications like medical advancements and so on But there are some developments that we as the church need to heed the words of Jesus in the 13th chapter of Mark's gospel that say things like in verse 5, see to it that no one leads you astray. Be on your guard and be awake. Now, the other thing I think our Lord would want to leave his church with today is great hope. Christ's kingdom of good will prevail in the end. Period. It is the one, it will be the one final reality left standing at the end of human history. Period. And those who today are willing to bow down to Christ as supreme sovereign through the gospel, will be given eternal entrance into that final reality that we call the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And so as believers, today in 2023, especially here at Grace Athens, I want us to be two things. And that's the balance of any mature, wise person. They, They can live in the paradox. They can live in the both and. And that's this. I want us to be vigilant and I want us to be joyful. Vigilant Aware, awake, but rock solid joy. I'm not talking about superficial happiness. I'm talking about a rugged joy that's spent life in the scriptures, that's gone down in the depths of prayer, that knows their sinfulness, that, that, that has built up a Christ like character that says, yes, even in the midst of suffering, we will rejoice. Yeah. It's a joy that is. Like a foundation. It's, it's laid and, and things can be built upon it. Even if storms and, and wind comes. That kind of joy. Robust joy. God-given joy. Because here's the deal. You need that. The Psalms say that my strength is the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is my strength. What does that mean? That means when you meet those people that have that kind of rugged joy, they can go through anything. They live from a different platform. Now, here's why I think we need to be vigilant and joyful. (laughs) Because no one is going to be converted by scared Christians. No one is going to be converted by shaky Christians. Especially ones that got all kinds of Well, that's a soapbox, but I'm not encouraging you to go down some crazy rabbit hole of conspiracies. Don't put on the tin hat. That's a scared Christian. That's not a joyful one. Can a joyful, vigilant Christian look into these things with really good help? Not what Uncle Bob sent you in a text message, but with good Sources and all those things? Absolutely. And you should. And you should show me some of that. Let me help you. And I have all kinds of other help I can give you. But no one's going to be converted by shaky Christians. They're going to be converted by joyful and intelligent ones. Awake ones. And I don't want you to ever forget this. God loves us. You and me and all of the world. Every baby that was born today, God loves you with a fierce love that no scheme of man or of the devil can ever thwart. He holds not only our world, but the universe in his able and gentle hands. God is infinitely massive. I don't care how big the Tower of Babel they build and what kind of digital deity, it is but a speck of intelligence in the infinite mind of Almighty God. The internet is a joke to the mind of God. All informational systems are but a dot in the infinite mind of Christ. And so know that he loves you and guards you with a fierce love. And remember what it says in Hebrews 12. It says... That we are a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The theologians call it the unshakable kingdom of God. Everything else it says in that passage will be shaken in due time. It will. But not the benevolent kingdom of our God. It's unshakable. And so in the meantime, we want to be those kind of people who build for that kingdom. For that final reality. And I think practically what that looks like for our little part, our contribution as Grace Athens, is that we want to provide two things for this Athens-Oconee area and even specifically for the University of Georgia in light of what we're talking about. And that's this. You've heard me say it. But maybe it hasn't clicked yet. We want to be a center for God's kingdom, number one. What does that mean? It is a real place and a real people where locals can be invited into that is brooding with the things of God. It's a center. If you don't think UGA and some of the surrounding neighborhoods need a center of God, they can come and hear the gospel and be around brothers and sisters who know God and give them hope and heal things. You're out of your mind. This place needs a center for the kingdom. Secondly, the second part of our vision is we want to be a sender for the kingdom of God. That's a military-like outpost that sends kingdom ambassadors into our broken world with purpose, with meaning, with love, and they bring about God's purposes in their everyday lives. A sender. That is what we want to build at Grace Athens. Now, this new school year, and beyond. Amen.